0: Welcome to the Data Leadership Lessons Podcast. I'm your host, Anthony J. Algman. Data is everywhere in our businesses and it takes leadership to make the most of it. We bring you the people's stories and lessons to help you become a data leader. We've partnered with Dataversity to provide listeners with 20% off your first training center purchase with promo code AlgmanDL. Go to dataleadershiptraining.com to learn more. Today on episode 89, we welcome Bobby Napletonia. Bobby serves as the president of universal data authorization company, Ocara. He has a long distinguished track record of success with pivotal roles in creating open standards like JSON and many commercial successes with Twilio, Salesforce, and AppExchange. If I tried to do a full justice to Bobby's background, we wouldn't have time for the rest of the show today. So I can just, let me assure you, we're going to learn a lot today. Uh, We'll cover some more of the details of Bobby's background, but first let's just welcome Bobby. Welcome to the show. Thank
1: you for being here. Thank you so much for having me, Anthony. It's moments like this that make me cherish that you, know, you you'd gone on the the rich history of 35 years of experience to get to actually share some of that. I sometimes say it would be criminal if I didn't get to share some of the wealth of knowledge I've been able to ascertain. So thank you for allowing me to have the the platform to do so.
0: It's our pleasure and and it's it's having guests like you who have been there and done some really amazing things things that we work with all the time. You've been on the other side of that and creating some of these things and so like we do with all our first time guests. Why don't we just kind of level set give us kind of that story overview of your career kind of how all of this has led to ultimately what you're doing now with OKRA.
1: Go okay, wow, well, That's a great question. That would be the storyline. So I've been beyond blessed and beyond thankful in terms of the opportunity that uh, that God's afforded me, and and I truly do mean that. So um, in in the thirty five years, I was fortunate enough to start my career in distribution. And um, it's actually still a privately held family business called DNH Distributing. They're one of the last uh, people standing. You know, the other two actually got acquired most recently by private equity, and uh, they've been around for about a hundred years. So you may ask yourself, how does a hundred-year-old company be in technology? It wasn't around. And what they really got was the distribution model down. And I was very fortunate that I started selling Sperry Green screen terminals. So like, this is really a long time ago. But the industry changed at such a pace that at an early age I got an addiction to uh, to the learning and the knowledge. So you can imagine in distribution at the early days of the PC era, we'll call it, where everyone was putting things out, much like our conversation at the start of the show: which cable, which plug, does it work? And you know, I just go. At the end of the day, one company nailed it. Um, they're not even around anymore. RCA cables, red, yellow, and and white. Everyone knew what to do, but then you come to today. So, so back to them. So distribution allowed me to see, and they've been the world's largest RCA and uh, Whirlpool distributor. So at the beginning of the industry, they had what was the, you know that big box footprint, and that's how everyone went to market. But the technology was changing so fast. Since the X eighty eighty six, two eighty six, three eighty six, four, and just that pace is, uh, if, depending on what you like, I just got addicted to it early on. And uh, the rest is history. I, I left there after seven years and joined a startup. And uh, we, uh, we created, we're actually the fastest growing company in the world for the first half of the 90s. We grew from 30 million to a billion five. This is pre-internet. We actually shipped product, called an ASP of $99. So you can imagine. And we were the third company after Intel and Microsoft to reach hundred million users. So think about that. And we created audio for the PC industry. You and I would not be having this if Creative Labs never existed to the quality of that we have. And that created media and we made animation. And that's probably where the addiction fell into what I would call love. Because if you, I was fortunate, when you're at the winner and the leader, you learn a thing and you actually learn probably more than you do from, from, uh, from the other side of the coin. And post that, uh, I just kept on the startup trail, followed our COO in the late 90s to the internet, which is kind of hard to believe, and here we are talking about it today, we'll get to the data. And nothing was really happening online then, it was really communities, but, but there's an important factor that we're gonna come here, which comes back to data leadership. The only reason the internet took off was because we trusted the things that would we'd get on it, right? My first report in 1980-something, I still have the five and a quarter floppy. We trust it was better than the Dewey Decimal System. And when you think about that, uh, it's probably more important today than ever before, especially for the topic around data. But but real quickly, back to the career. So we spent time in the community space, and it was too early. Pipes weren't fat enough, and it was really about how folks could do collaboration uh, on the web. and so. Uh, Open Text was a big investor in us and they really wanted the communication layer so they could plug it into their product, so that people could really collaborate. And think about this, this is 2000 and they could actually use software and communicate online collaboratively like we were doing today in, in COVID during Zoom. But um, we shut the company down, they took the assets and we started a company called State Software because this is when the web was inanimate. And our whole goal was if we could make it because chat was just a communication pipeline. And our whole goal was if we could make a way that apps could actually look like communication tools, and that's where we created uh, JSON. And so uh, unfortunately, 2001 hit, you don't have to tell you, it's far worse than where we are today. And so we uh, couldn't get funding. We thought we were gonna sell it to three companies and in the end, BEA took a pass. So we open sourced it. And today it runs on about 99% of the websites around the world. So when you think of ubiquity, I'm not sure that we have a technology that has been more, um, more wide reaching than something like JSON because of what it actually delivers today. So um, I'm proud and happy about that, although there was no you know, real commercial success. And I joined BEA where I had the opportunity to run all of our indirect business worldwide, which included our joint venture with Intel. And that was important because this is at a time where we we're trying, you know, the internet was early and Intel wanted to own that compute layer. And so, with their investment, we had all of the ISVs and people building on top of our platform. As I was sharing this last night, we had like twenty eight thousand partners that build on our battery. So when you think about going to market with that big of a reach and an arm, that allowed us to truly have uh, domination. And, and it's interesting because the we were just middleware, and and I'm going to bring that word back because yesterday I was presenting to someone that would be our age. And uh, first thing that he said to me was, this sounds like middleware, what, what you guys do. And I go, well, why is that? And he goes, well, you want to put this trust layer across the entire internet. And what you want to be able to do is make sure the data is trusted. And it's not that it's right data or wrong data, but that the people who get it is trusted. And if you think about middleware, we wouldn't have an industry today without it. And I go, well, keep going. And he didn't know I worked at BA. And I said, what do you mean by that? And so I was trying to hear how other people think about data as a whole and where they see it in the, in the, in the bigger picture. And so he said, well, think about all those siloed apps. And what you really needed was workflow that would take from your PO to your sales system, to a system to process it. Did it get shipped? And without middleware, you would have never able to have that orchestration. And then you had ETL, which pulled it out. Now fast forward to where we are today, that's the same thing, except the data sets are different where it's the snowflakes, the AWSs, and you got the Teradatas and the old school stuff from you know history. And so we were probably in the most heterogeneous space and so BEA got me to see the scope of the world, mission-critical applications. But surprisingly, before I took that job, our sponsor said, hey, I wanna introduce you to a friend of mine. I think you guys will get along. His name's Mark Benioff, and he's got this startup. And uh, so I met Mark, and um, they were a startup and small, and we were going to have a family. You see the pictures in the background, I'm always like, look, you gotta go to work. So I took the job at BEA, and Mark and I remained friends. And Two and a half years later, we, we remained in contact. And he goes, okay, we're, we're real now. We're doing $60 million in sales. You got to come join us. I'm thinking, oh, this billion-dollar company? We own the world. And so rolled the dice and uh, started with uh, an idea called, can we change the world with SaaS? And it became no software and it became the cloud. And I had the opportunity to build the app exchange from scratch. And uh, just last quarter, it hit a trillion dollars. And we had our millionth download I say we because I feel like it's my child still, even though Woodson's managing, and we you know, text back and forth and say thanks for taking care of my kid, that's a wonderful thing. And but probably what gives me the most reward, to, to be honest, Anthony, and I just had one of these a month ago and then about four months ago. So, and I could pull up my phone and read it to you, it might be better for a different time as prepared. I get notes and I got a note from this entrepreneur, and he said, I just want to say thank you for creating the app exchange. We just sold my company. And my other founder bought a Lamborghini, but I want to appreciate you for helping us. So I've created a portion of mine to fund, to help educate other founders like myself how they can actually have a business on the App Exchange. Mm-hmm. And to me, that was rewarding. Um, I mean, think about the amount of lives we change, and not for the people on Sand Hill Road, but the people, the people, the people, the people. And so you'll hear a mantra of who I am and what I are is, you know, how do we help? My, my mother gave us a not us who, and it was sort of something that we as three boys lived by and carried throughout our careers. So I joined Mark, I spent a four years at, uh, at Salesforce. We grew to, from uh, 60 million to a billion four for a familiar story in which uh, a great portion of the business, and I, I would argue we may have created the greatest moat this industry has seen. And, and I say that because let's think, who's not replicated? A bunch of small companies, has Microsoft, No. Has Oracle? No. Has SAP? No. Has Apple? Kind of, but for consumers. Has Google? No. Think about all of those names and all of that money and all of those customers, and yet they've still never tried to reproduce anything that's truly changed the industry. Um, My addiction then led me to something big. You'll see a a theme here, Anthony. I I try to look at the technologies that at least 80% of the world will consume. Because if you do that and you just get 10%, you still have a multi-billion dollar organization. So at that particular point in time, the smart grid was coming up. Uh, I'm a pointy, 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 pointy piece of the spear believer in technology. So uh, at this point of this uh, time, I uh, joined a company and we had six customers, two suing us, one stole our technology. And we, uh, we, we hired a CEO, a gentleman named Gary Bloom. We turned the company around, we created a platform. But how we did that was through the data. And so if you start thinking, and this is my first, like we always had data, but the data was really for the first time consumerish data in the smart grid. And that data is so important because they they have to bill. And the only way a utility goes to jail or gets fined is if they bill someone incorrectly. And so all of a sudden you have a new technology, digitization, just like we're seeing in every industry. And we had what, middleware-ish that put in there and it could make sure that everything worked and that the consumer would always be billed correctly. And so we went and lit up 17 different countries, became a standard, and then the next thing was over. We got bought by Siemens because once you become that big enough in an inertia world like Smart Grid, because we all consume electricity, it's probably 97% of the world. And uh, I left there after that and got a call from a buddy of mine over at Bessemer who said, hey, listen, we we got this hot technology company. We're struggling a little bit and um given your background you understand telco at ba we powered nine out of ten telcos so we're very intimate in terms of uh, like true dial tone nine nines and failure and the company was called twilio and so um i joined jeff and uh spent about uh, just under 18 months there uh, surprisingly myself a cmo and a cpo all left simultaneously i think it was just the timing for everyone but the part i'm i'm, I'm very um proud of and i'll pull pull this out every now and then is uh just as happening because it was out yesterday. This this is actually after six months being there, this is the billion dollar business model plan where um it takes me a while to ascertain what things work, but this was the entire flow of uh of the model and I'm very I used to my people always say, Oh don't keep bending it, get it full get it uh uh picture framed. I gotta get you know, the layers no big and I get to pull it out and it gets me some smiles every now and then. So um uh, I spent that, that much time at Twilio. We figured out the business model. If you think about that, we really created how APIs sell today, how to charge, how to price for them. You know, we could backtrack into uh, Salesforce. We created all those words and jobs you see today, CAC, LTV, that, that all came out of our, 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 our world. And so I love that we get to set the precedent because if you set the table, you can invite everyone to come and then it's just a jump ball and let the customers decide who and what they want. So, um, uh, Post Twilio, I then went and spent some time in uh, transportation and shipping, trying to learn that you know, macro big industry. If you look at the supply chains today, they're pretty messed up. Um, that industry is not ready to be digitized because it's so deep in what I would consider um, I can't use the word on air, but there's a lot of um, under the table um, uh, stuff that goes on that you would just go, ah, now I see why our supply chains are like that. And it's just because it's fragmented and pushed down so much throughout uh, the entire industry. Um, and then just before I joined Okura, we had sold our last company as COVID came on board. It was probably the right thing to do. And I, my, my goal was to figure out like what's next. And so uh, my daughter, I have a daughter, she's 16 now, and we went to Disneyland. And I spent about six months searching for what to do just because I'd like to figure out something fun. By the way, I don't not do anything. During my time off, I teach a class at the NASDAQ Entrepreneurial Center and I try to adopt one female founding CEO a year, first timer. And I usually try to pick a topic that's near and dear to me. Since I said, "of a kid," uh, the two that I'm actively involved with, one is um, re- reimagining the transportation system, the largest in America, a company called Zoom. And if you know, people say education's about access. Well, access isn't about reading. It's how do you get there? And so we're overhauling and electrifying the entire transportation system for students, and it's going extremely well. We're we're, we're just killing it. And then another one that. Um, to be honest, I'm a little disheartened of the uptake. So Catherine is the CEO of uh, Neolith, which is a mental health for children. And if you think about the most fragile thing we have going on today and look at Texas, look anywhere, the kids need help post COVID and just in general. And so we have a platform. We just won a big grant from Salesforce coincidentally and and to to, to, to feature how we're going out there. But our whole goal is if we can't get the kids ready for tomorrow, which is what we do, then our industry is not going to be there. And then the third thing I do is I spend a lot of time with women. So I'm a part of um, Upward Men, which is part of Upward Women. And our whole goal is for the advancement of women into executive positions because people promote from who they want. And it's just a fact of how it goes. And so if you want systemic change, it needs to start at the top. And so that all ties together, having had a strong mother. So my daughter and I were sitting and standing in a line at Disneyland. And I said, so these are the three opportunities I'm thinking about. Um, What do you think? I said, the really big problems in the world, the first is energy. And uh, look, we live in California, and our lights, go our energy just was down. So that's not energy, but who knows why and what the blip was. And so uh, a company that I'm involved with, and we just, uh, in the process of being acquired, is uh, virtual power plants. No one knows this, but think about what cloud computing did for the computer industry. Well, just imagine when we do the same thing for energy and electricity. You, you don't know this, Anthony, there's more than a thousand peaker plants located in under, privileged neighborhoods that cost the company, cost the country more than 30 billion dollars just to keep alive should we need to turn them on. They're coal fired, they're horrible, they're bad. And so our goal, just like we ripped and replaced uh, infrastructure of uh, data centers, is to do the same thing for electricity. And so I said, that's a big one. And everyone in the world needs some help with that because uh, look what's happening. The second one is something that is food. I don't know if you know this, the biggest problem in America is truly food waste. It's a multi-trillion dollar problem, waste. Just things you and I went to a buffet and didn't eat that we can't serve to the people that are starving. So I have a friend at work, so Jessica over at Impossible Foods and so um, I'll let her tackle that problem. It's not something that's germane to me. And then the third one was all of that can truly uh, be addressed with data because data doesn't lie. If it's clean, you might have dirty data And so I went out to look for what data companies are out there. I ran into a couple of very cool ones, one collecting data dust. So you and I have phones. And on our phones, all those apps we've said yes to start acquiring a little bit of information. So pick up those little data dusts. And if you get all that dust together, you actually get a gold bar. And that gold bar is so valuable it doesn't tell you who it belongs to. And I thought, wow, that's just such a long tail use of data. And recently they got $100 million, so I'm, I'm happy for, uh, for him and I hope they go and kill it. But it didn't really scratch the itch of the trust layer, and you'll go back to you know something that I think that's important for us, and, and I say that because we really wouldn't have the internet without trust. Do you agree or disagree with me? I would agree. I would agree with that. And who do you think was the first company that established uh, trust on the internet?
0: I have no idea.
1: I, I would no argue idea. it's eBay. Huh. And here's why, so think about this. The internet was just a place to get information, but you and I as humans, we wanna trade, we wanna barter goods for food, fruits and apples for pelts and furs, and all they did was allow us to go and say, Pez dispensers for whatever. And no one wanted to do it until you said, but I liked it and he liked it and she liked it and Anthony's a good person and you can trust him. And all of a sudden you had an economy of trust occur. And then we tried to make the internet useful for trust to that next layer, which is transactions. And at first we all thought, and this was in the early 2000s, that it was dying because the card abandonment and it was a bad experience. It really came down to no one trusted putting your credit card in there until we saw the VeriSign, the McAvee's, again, data, trust, and and the the transaction. And so all of a sudden you had a big boom that e-commerce started taking off and we didn't have an innovation of trust on the internet until this guy got online and said, hey, my name is, I forget his name, but we'll go, my name is Bobby Napoltonia, 555-1212-000 is my social security number. And if you get breached, I'll pay for you. They sold for $7 billion to Symantec and every day you can see an infomercial. So it's so bad, the lack of trust that you have companies coming to do it. Thank God we have Europe coming down with GDPR mm-hmm. because they know that we, we, most people that come into, look, there's seatbelt laws because we're, we need help. Right? There's drinking laws of quality of water because we need help. There's internet laws because we as just people need this help. And so you go on to that trust and you say, okay, so if LifeLock was the last one, I would argue that it uh, happened to be in the room at Salesforce. Uh, maybe it was there six months and we had our first outage. And I thought, oh my God, eight hours. We're going out of business. Why did I take this job? My wife was right. Holy hell. And Mark made us all break up into groups. And the next morning we created All Green Dots and which is trust.salesforce.com. We redefined trust for the enterprise as being about four things, SRAS, security, reliability, availability, scalability. And so we then challenged Microsoft, Oracle, SAP, and all the big companies, do it too. To this day, none of them have done it. Think about that. So that's a testament to how unique we were and are and still remain to be at Salesforce. But that was the next big innovation in the enterprise. Because outside of that, let's be honest, Zero trust, two words that mean nothing. So where Akira comes in is putting in this trust layer so that the people that are supposed to see the data should, and there's other people doing it, the people that should not shouldn't see it. And that's the most important thing because by by, by nature as humans, we're curious and we wanna see things and we may not know the responsibility associated with seeing those things. And so uh, here I am at a a company five months in and I couldn't be more excited because of uh, who the customers are. Um, To be honest, I didn't believe someone could tackle such a big, hard problem. It it, it perhaps could be one of the most difficult that I've seen in in the world today, just because if you think about all the data source, all the things who can see it, it's far greater than middleware because we have, again, the most heterogeneous IT landscape we've ever seen. Shit from 30 years ago all the way to what's tomorrow. And like, it's never been this crazy. It's like Wild West. And so we need a governance layer to come help people. And uh, recently there was an event called Airside, and a bunch of companies spoke about the importance of trust, including the World Bank, Snowflake, some of our customers. Because at the end of the day, we're going to get to the point as consumers. I mean, think, let me ask you one question. How many things come to your email box that you don't care about, or don't want, or never ask for? Oh, 100 a day. Right? Is that fair to you? Did you? Shouldn't you just be able to tell those people stop? I mean, what if you had a button that said, yeah. "Push this button," and all of a sudden, ten million emails flooded. Who sent that to you? And they were shut down for a week. <laughs> I mean, like that's the app I want to go kill for us consumers. That we just get that spam. You hit that button. Guess what? Spam would stop tomorrow. Yeah. Imagine yeah. you outside and your uh, UPS or your uh, mailman comes. You go, "I don't want that junk mail. Keep in your car." After he got through the neighborhood, he'd be like, "I can't deliver junk mail anymore." I mean, it's criminal how people, people, companies get away with treating consumers the way they do. And at the end of the day, all you and I have is our name, our identity, and our information. And no one should do things with it. They shouldn't, including send me emails I don't want.
0: Yeah, I'm still I'm, I'm still amazed that I still continue to get robocalls on every phone I have. Like, how have we not actually? I have two robokillers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um so so I want to get into the actual interview of of this and but but my first comment is not for you Bobby it's for everyone else who's listening see see I told you that th- this is why it was a difficult introduction um I mean you've been everywhere and and what what has been great to hear you, as you reflect on that, it wasn't about your personal successes or the the money or the, the any of that stuff. It was how you made a difference, how you solved a problem, how you were engaged in helping people with big problems, and that that's inspiring to me because that's what we should all aim for. And and I find that the older I get, the more it means it's not about me. It's not about that outcome for myself it's not chasing the big payout it's about how can we contribute to humankind or to things that really matter and so i appreciate Do you have children? Uh,
1: that perspective you have yes Do you have children? how old
0: uh son who's 11 and uh twin daughters that are seven
1: Oh, twin daughters. That's great. So the reason I ask that is the give back starts early and I try to get my daughter to give back. And it's just hard that the kids don't want to do it anymore. And, you know, maybe it is an age thing. Maybe it's a wisdom thing. Maybe it's a fatherly thing. I'm not sure. But in this whole world we live in, the give back and being kind are two important principles, I believe, in general.
0: Oh, completely. Completely. So I'm I'm curious because I I want... Okira is really interesting to me and I want to focus um, some more of this energy because it's it's top of mind for me and a lot of the work that I do day to day is solving this even in a singular organization is incredibly difficult. And to do it broadly is astronomically challenging. So can you talk a bit about what is the approach here? Because I think like you were talking about some of these middleware things. And I think about like data buses. I think about things all like this thing keeps circling, right? We, we're constantly dealing and with the seems... same patterns. Yeah. yeah. And so this this whole kind of governance and trust layer, if it can be solved the way some of these other things have been solved, um, it, it, it would open up. So much more capability, because th- it's such a friction on innovation in individual organizations, let alone the, the more macro sense.
1: Um, What's well, interesting, you should say that the innovation component, there's a video from that airside event I spoke about from a company called Yachtbo which no one here has ever heard of, they're out of Israel, but they are with, well, is there anything about it? Israeli companies, very innovative, very disciplined, very structured, very like very, very successful. Most of the security companies come out of Israel for a reason. Anyway, the uh, they showed how they used Okira to turn their 297 engineers to look like a thousand because the productivity they were allowed to give by unleashing a governance layer across all technologies so that they could bring breast to beat in. And if they didn't like it, swap it out immediately, and not not have any any connection to any of the other people whatsoever. And so it was a very, very, very timely and important way for it to occur.
0: Awesome. Yeah. Awesome. So, so how how do you do this? Like, what is what? It's a what, good question. You... So,
1: so um, so I've been here five months, and this particular segment was somewhat new to me, as I shared. And so I really want to understand, and, and I, by the way, this whole sector category is struggling a little bit because it's early on, who to sell to, who has the problem, what to do. And so it's really rather interesting. I would argue that inside some companies, it's kick the can. And and, and I say, like, everybody knows it's a problem, but it's ostrich time. And so I say that, like, let me ask you the question. Who should care within an organization? CEO, mm-hmm. for sure, Right. Then, but it happens, who's he turned to? The CTO, the CIO, the CDO. So they start asking CSO. So the first thing a CEO says, hey, Mr. CISO, I need you to secure my data. He goes, I'm not the data guy. That's the CIO, the data guy. I'm not the security guy. We don't secure data. CDO, I just hired him. I'm the digital guy. We don't have any. So the can gets kicked to who does something. So if you don't have an owner, here's the sad, sad part. Then you have the privacy, governance, and compliance people, which typically are smart, smart, but lawyers, they're not technologists. So it would be like you and I being dropped into an operating room. I wouldn't know what to do. It's like putting them in a tech world. They don't know, they just want the problem solved. So um, I have a vision for that that I might be sharing at the end of so like like, there's, there are a lot of uh, analogies to where we've been that we can solve this problem. And so where we really see it is by organizations that realize they don't wanna be part of the Fortune 500 that 20 years ago were here and are no longer here because they didn't digitize. Do you know who they are? Sears, a bit blockbuster. I mean, we go down the list of all the names. Oh yeah. uh, Kmart, we just go on and on and on. And so when you think through that, um, what we're seeing is, and I saw this before, even before I joined, I saw our pipeline and I was thinking, oh my God, what are those companies calling you for? First, no data scientist is gonna work there. Second, they're definitely a Fortune 500 company, but there's, they're not going to make it. And you start realizing that this is the most important part of this digitization happen is the ecosystem. I got a podcast tomorrow on the importance of the ecosystem for this happening, actually. Um, oh. I'm pretty excited about it because I don't think that we're going to get to where we need to be without that. I mean, think about this. Without Microsoft's ecosystem, would it, we have compute today where it is? No. And without some of the other ones we've seen, we wouldn't. Without Salesforce ecosystem, would we have the cloud today? No. I got into an argument with a VC recently. They go, oh, that's bull, bull crap. And I go, well, what do you mean? He goes, well, you have companies like DocuSign. I go, okay, true story. There would be no DocuSign without Salesforce. Their first deal was in my world, and I can tell you all about it. And the next thing's history because you had to sign sales contracts. Stop. Like, they didn't go out on their own and find people to sign stuff. We were the gravitational pull. And you just go down the list and probably all but three or four of what I would consider today's cloud giants came out of ours. And that would be just probably work day and service. Now everyone else was born from our world. And so when you think about the amount of information and data and what you see, and then to pull that back into this whole new world again, which is this data world, it's a pretty exciting time, but companies don't know who to turn to. Um, it's, it's interesting. I argue all the time that our, our competition is truly awareness and education. Um, before I joined a, a uh, I like booth duty and mainly, especially without a shirt on, because you can just wander around and, and be a lurker and listen. And I was uh, did booth duty at reInvent. It was my first time going to a reInvent. I joke with AWS people that the the, the ecosystem was never big enough for me to pay attention to. Of course they didn't like <laughs> I'd say, look, I built a trillion dollar one, you guys don't have that yet, stop. And so uh, but they would yeah, know, look, they want to be partner friendly, I'd like to do those things with them, and all of a sudden you realize that. Everyone's trying to solve a problem, so they're doing bespoke build-offs. But that happens in every new technology when you encounter a problem. Build, buy, invest, like it's a big, big problem. And as a matter of fact, we're fortunate at Okira. One of our customers is also an investor. Capital One tried to build it, couldn't, tried to buy it, couldn't find it, so they invested in us. I mean, think about that power of importance. We may actually be at a time where customers want to invest in the technology companies, as do partners, more so than venture or vulture capitalists to try to extract money out of everyone. Cause at the end of the day, if you invest in your own future, you'll end up paying yourself back in spades.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, it, it, it's something that definitely hits home with me is, is, there's a lot of things that we're trying to do that we're not well equipped to do on our own. Our partners are, but they may not have the, full breadth of understanding of all of the intricacies of the challenges so if we can partner together and invest in making those things happen we get a better solution that we could come up with otherwise and the you know product vendor company has something that they can take to market and help a bunch of other people at the same time because it's non-competitive for our, our enterprise it's helpful for us but then we can have it built kind of the way that we see it Fitting the best, and I think that provides an important feedback loop of information to the product companies that are out there because they don't get the benefit of having to work with it all day, every day in a very complicated environment.
1: And and where so they can uh,
0: understand their customers.
1: Yeah, that's probably the hardest thing that I've seen here. I mean, you know where I've worked. So you've seen the infrastructures and you can imagine. What, by, by the way, we didn't talk about IoT and building infrastructures. Talk about, uh, we, we sold that company to Siemens coincidentally as well after we rolled up about a billion square feet of, uh, of sensors and ceilings. But, but that said, and that was a lot of data. Talk about data, data. Um, yeah, that said, um, it's going to be a very interesting decade. Because we're going to see new partnering models that we might not have seen from a survival perspective because of the macro environment. So I think that will be uh, somewhat interesting to see what occurs. But I also think that you'll start seeing specialists in data, just like we saw for the cloud. And then they'll go by vertical and then they'll get really down to it. Because at the end of the day, every department can use data either to save money or, more importantly, to make money.
0: As you were talking about the that kind of kick the can thing, there's been something that has been I've been thinking about ever since you mentioned that and that is like our organizational structures are kind of they're broken in, in a heavily data driven world because we are set up. It's like we're we're set up to handle organs in the body that is our businesses. But when it comes to data, we're talking about like a cardiovascular system that reaches every piece. Of that body. Our organizational structures are not designed to support that at all. And I think, like what we were just talking about, about these partnerships and, and that stuff, it's literally us saying we cannot. Figure out how our organ organizational structure no pun intended. I just realized organizational. There's actually a reference to organ there. I like that. But it, it's it's also but it, like we we have realized hey we are in a bind here. There's no good place to put data within that organizational structure, and that's why it's always just kind of bouncing around. Some organizations don't even bother. We're like they have no chief data officer. They have they have some compliance sitting over in legal, and they have some technology sitting over in IT. But nobody's really Thinking about it from that functional perspective, and maybe this is the answer. Maybe the the reaching out and partnering. Maybe that's what gives us an avenue to actually be able to transform our organizations in the future. And you're smiling. So I wonder if this is
1: I'm smiling for a couple of reasons, and I took some notes here because uh, uh, I'll I'll tell you why. So uh, first and foremost. Change management's the hardest thing because people, uh, look, I was, uh, SOPs, procedures, Like we all need the way of life of what we do that we don't do that. And when you think yeah. of the change management componentry, the, the, the cloud really probably for the first time in the history of our industry allowed for people to invest in change management because you didn't spend money on hardware, software support and maintenance. Right Before nine out of $10 went to the stuff that you got no value and you were left for a dollar to hope someone could install it and it would work and they could train you to use it. And the cloud took, we took $2 and we gave eight back to the channel or the partners. And we said, with eight, $8, you need to go and do change management, business call, consulting, reform their business. And so we allowed them to take that differential and invest it and that really is what made that ecosystem grow because we showed new ways to make money to help the customer so they would give you more of it because you allowed their businesses to grow. I see the exact same thing happening here where the change management around the data, how to do it, what to do with it, who owns it, where does it reside? Look, we haven't even talked about data governance from transborder, where does it go, a multinational data integrity, data sovereignty, like we're just getting started on this overall data journey. And, and by the way, when, you, when I say that, think about this statement then, just about 15% of the IT budget is in the cloud. We got 85% to go what's that tell you how much data is going to be available? It's only going to exponentially grow. As a matter of fact, in the next two years, we will produce more data than we have in the history of time. Mm -hmm. Think about that. Yeah.
0: Yeah. It's terrifying how much increase we're seeing. We've been seeing and will see, and it's growing exponentially. And so, The mechanisms by which we managed data 20 years ago are laughably out of date, but we're still in many cases trying to manage data the way we were five or 10 years ago, and those are not going to suffice either. And that's what's scary is that we barely implemented what we were trying to do 10 years ago now. Now we're trying to say, okay, yeah, we're going to have to do that every year now going forward at a level that we've never conceived of before. It's it's, it's terrifying, I think, for, for organizations. They'd rather just ignore it. But what's what's the outcome then? You you end up one of those Fortune 500 companies that's no longer a company.
1: Yeah, it's interesting. It's interesting what uh, how something like data can disintermediate an industry. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
0: and it's not an industry it's every industry right like it's this is pervasive across all kinds of industries and and some that you once thought i mean it's it's almost silly to even bring it up now but like not long ago we would have thought the i don't know taxi cab industry would be immune from the influence of the cloud or the internet or, or of data uh, that's now your your prime example of what you might say has has been disrupted by. There's no safe place that you can hide from these things at this point. And it is absolutely essential that we stop just dumping resources into things that provide little value. And that's where like this trust layer and and just the facilitation of understanding, Governance and understanding the the rules of engagement for data to me. Those are things that are table stakes. Those are things that everybody should have. There should be an understanding of how we interact with them. And then we focus on those things that will make us better businesses. You know, that's the foundation of data leadership. It's basically how do we take the limited resources that we have and make the biggest change in our business results in the end. And, and data is going to be a huge part of that. And if we are just barely able to function as an organization with the data that we already have, let alone the data that's to come in the next couple of years, we are going to be in a really bad place trying to, to survive when, when that growth actually does happen.
1: You just made me think of something. Should we have data 101 classes that we educate people and companies and what data is and how to respond and how to treat it and what to do with it? Because if you think about it, if you've never seen a kid before, how would you know how to change a diaper? How would you know that it couldn't swim and if it goes by a pool, it could drown? How would you know not to let it run with scissors? Is that how we should treat data? And that that those three analogies actually apply to people and companies with using data. It's like running with scissors. It's like jumping in water without being able to swim like it, in the bed when they do something bad
0: with it and i like your analogies because they are they are kind of basic fundamental like needs principles here like it's first off we'd love to do better but let's not destroy ourselves from a lack of knowledge first and then let's try to use the stuff productively because if you aren't at least aware of how to keep data from destroying you you're not going to be able to start using data to improve a bunch of things and and create monetary value or or what have you and so i think you're right the question i think the strategic question is do you try to do that across the entire landscape of everyone in an organization or are you trying to choose your spots to say okay some people really need to be data literate other people can get by for a little while it's that question of is data literacy something that is universally important or is it selectively important i would argue the former but
1: i don't know i would argue it's universally important and here's why when you have a fire drill happen in the building when everyone went to buildings was it important that everybody heard there was a fire drill or just the people that needed to escape the building
0: Right. Yeah. Everybody. And it's everybody. that it's like it's like, do you do you want just the people who are in charge of the floors that are supposed to, like, help people get out? Are those the only ones that should know about the fire drills? No, no it really should be everybody. Yeah, everybody. I think I, I would I would agree with you that there's a baseline safety competence. It's like, hey, core thing for fire drill, like if we want to be safer in, in terms of fires in our buildings, let's. Start by not starting a bunch of fires in our buildings. And so that way we may have a, a greater likelihood of not having the fire in the first place. And I think that the analogy I'm a huge fan of analogies on a fly and some work, some
1: don't. I like this one. I think this one's this I can get behind this one. This is good. <laughs> good deal. Well, I mean, there's a lot of truism to it. So we believe in democratizing data so that everyone can be a data citizen and therefore, you know, it's up to the, the company. Think about it this way. Uh, well, years ago, I used to have to sign something when I ran sales groups that I had no side deals, no sidebar letters, none of that. It was almost like a compliance thing, actually, is what it was. Then you had to, we were publicly traded, and if you think about that, that's no different than having the governance layer instead of me signing. It would know that I didn't have any of that stuff because the machines would be able to say what actually transpired in any transaction.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It reminds me too. There's, there's, mm-hmm. it's pretty easy to create policy pretty easy to say hey this is what you should and shouldn't do i find it very hard to follow policy it's very hard as an individual to understand what are all the policies what am i supposed to be doing who can tell me whether or not what i'm about to do is a good idea or a bad idea and it's not just simple like common sense types of stuff it's literally like i don't know the process for this thing i don't even know if a process exists i can't find the policy is that something that you that you can help us navigate through the work that you do at okira
1: definitely some policy help. So uh, it's interesting to say that the new IT backlog <clears throat> used to be password resets, then it was my doesn't work and need a key card. It's yeah. policy bloat. The oh. two biggest service now or tickets or anyone is policy bloat and I'll get back to that and then and then it's really I need a report. So if you democratize the data, the actual people could get it. You never have to do a report log a ticket to get a report to get done. But policy bloat, we have one customer that comes up with new policies because you always can, but they manage their policies in a JSON file, which only allows for 80,000 characters. So every time they come up with a new policy, they have to pull one of the old, they used to, now they don't, they used to have to pull an old policy out and hope that no one would violate it. Because they only, their way in which they was. So, what we actually do is one centralized policy, regardless of the system. So, you truly can write it once, and it will permeate and orchestrate across all of your systems. So, you don't have to worry about writing multiple policies. And then, you and I, as the user, won't even know what we're doing. We only see what we're supposed to. Obfuscation occurs, it gets masked. All of a sudden, we get to see what we're supposed to, and we can do our job, and we can make sure we don't get in trouble.
0: That's, that's, supremely helpful and i think that's relatable to, to folks out there i think everybody has that kind of uh, challenge in, in some way or another now it, i know we're, we're just we, about
1: out of time we have one bank as a customer and i talked to him before i went on vacation uh three weeks ago and on a friday they said uh, to me the investment bank of the customer and he said to me wow we knew it was a problem when we had it but now that we've been working with you for a year we realize everyone in the world has this problem i thought wow this yeah. is validation this is validation <laughs> Yeah.
0: Yeah. Well, and I think you're you on to something where you're seeing a problem that is staring us in the face that a lot of people can't put words around yet. And and I, some of us can't. Some of us have seen it and are understanding. But I do think like what we are dealing with here and the, the solution to the problem, I think maybe people are feeling the pain of the problem, but the solution to the problem has to be found or we can't we can't cope with the the explosion of data in front of us who did i tell
1: you our, our competition is awareness education you just told me that that's the biggest problem i actually already know that and uh it's interesting you know where do people look and go to help besides your podcast for that
0: well i mean the the conferences youtube you know the the standard but they have to have that that proactive stance to it. They have to go and find it. They have to go and look for it. They have to know it's a thing to be found. Intellectual curiosity. And I don't know that a lot of people do.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Nope. Um, We don't either, which is why we're going to do the same thing we did at Salesforce, which showcased our customer success, let them see what leaders are doing and hope for everybody falls in line and follows.
0: Yeah, I think that's the that's the way you can create that that kind of massive changes. You've been there and done that before. So I'm glad that this problem is uh, to some extent in your hands. So I I really appreciate you tackling uh, this one because it certainly hits close to home for me. We're we're Out of time. Is there anything else you want to add before we go here? This is flown by. I feel like we didn't even get to ten percent of what I wanted to talk to you about. But hey, hopefully maybe we can have you on the show again. I was gonna say the
1: good news you now know who I am and we got a good enough relationship. We'll get past the niceties of the beginning and jump right into the meat of it. No, this was exceptional. You helping us, not just the word for us, the word for that you can have trusted data. You don't have to end up in the press, you don't have to have breaches, you don't have to have bad things happen. It is working. Uh, If you look at who our customers are, you check out uh, the content from Airside, you're going to see the companies that you use every day trust us every day. And therefore, I think it's just a matter of turning the crank, educating people, getting the ecosystem fired up and uh, rolling out a global trust layer. So join the trust data revolution and make sure that you participate in ensuring that we all can trust what we do with data.
0: Outstanding. So, Bobby, before we go, one last question. What's the best way for folks to find you?
1: You know, I, I thought about that. The easiest way is to go to okera.com, O-K-E-R-A.com. If you really want to get a response, I thought, I, I did a test before. This is the easiest way, and we won't sell to you, but just send a note to sales at okira.com and we'll make sure it gets routed to the right poper. That it, that's, the reason I say that is we got 15 people that look at that, so therefore it won't, it won't go into an email box that won't get mixed. It was interesting. I sent the note, who gets this? And we like 12 people. like, all right, this is going to work for this, uh, specifically for this call. If you reach it, uh, send us a note. We'll be more than happy to educate you. We're not here to sell you. We're in what I call salvation. You have a problem. We know it. It's going to put you out of business. Don't be shy. Give us a call.
0: And we'll include those links and some links too to like some videos from the airside event and, you know, other good information in the show notes for this. So check those out and, um, you know, certainly, certainly reach out. So, Bobby,
1: I can't thank you enough. Thank you so much for being on the show today. Thanks for having me. I can't wait to the next one. Have a great week. I'll see you in Chicago, hopefully. Outstanding. And thank you all for
0: joining us today. Uh, Go to dataleadershiplessons.com to subscribe and check out past episodes and accelerate your journey with training at dataleadershiptraining.com. Stay safe during these unusual times and go make an impact.